Welcome to Tectonic, everybody. Station Manager Ken here, filling in for your regular host, Mark Hurst, who shall return next week. Tectonic features conversations with creators and thinkers who are charting the way forward in an ever-weirdening, tech-saturated society. And tonight we have, I think, a really interesting interview with the author David Auerbach, who uh, wrote the recent book, Meganets, How Digital Forces Beyond Our Control Commandeer Our Daily Lives and Inner Realities. And this interview will take around 38 minutes, and then I'm hoping that in the last 20 minutes of the hour tonight, we can up the phone, open up the phone lines at 201-209-9368 and discuss some of the ideas that... David discusses. One of the things that interests me a great deal about David Auerbach's book is that he has a unique perspective for a tech critic in that he is a coder, that he spent 10 years working at both Microsoft and Google as a software engineer, which I think gives him a very different viewpoint of a lot of the issues that we talk about here or that Mark talks about here on Tectonic. And uh, David Auerbach is one of the few people who took the advice, not that he took it from Mark, but uh, it, it does so happen that he decided to resign from the tech industry because he started to see that as the products that he was building for Google and for Microsoft got larger and larger, the creators and the companies were completely losing control of them. And this gets to his concept of the meganet. He defines the meganet as an extremely large human-machine collaboration, uh, not just um, companies like Twitter or Facebook, but also governmental, national identity regimes, uh, certain blockchain regimes, et cetera, et cetera. He argues that the people who created these meganets cannot control them, that regulators cannot regulate them. And uh, we'll talk about why they cannot be regulated in the way that other entities have been regulated. He suggests a couple of different ways to tame meganets, such as decentralization of the type that you see at uh, the Twitter clone Blue Sky, as well as Mastodon, as well as WFMU's chat boards or very decentralized in terms of their moderation controls. Uh, another suggestion that he has for taming the power and damage of the meganets is to taint the data banks. Something that we hope you'll all do. We, we do hope that you'll spend some time today tainting the data banks, meaning offering bad data about yourself to the meganets. Uh, David gets into the trend of, uh, speaking of decentralization, the trend of narrative bunkers, also known as bubble filters. We discuss whether the Internet is now polluting itself thanks to the uh, spate of nonsensical text now populating the Internet thanks to large language models like ChatGPT. We do get into ChatGPT and AI and the idea of confusing language with intelligence or consciousness or understanding. 
we get into the absurd notion that all these chat GPT language models are hallucinating. Uh, David also talks about national digital ID cards, including India's Adhar system, uh, the Chinese social credit system that we've all heard so much about, as well as what Estonia, what tiny little Estonia is doing in terms of national digital um, ID cards. We get into an old uh, tale of uh, clever Hans, the horse that supposedly could do mathematical problems, which leads us into uh, the anthropomorphization of chat GPT, as well as horses who can clop their foot uh, to various um, mathematical questions. So uh, this, uh, we're going to listen to this in two parts. Once again, we're going to be talking to David Auerbach, um, who has a brand new book called Meganets. Uh, and then at the end, I'm hoping that you will call up and discuss some of the, uh, some of the points that we get into. Here then is tonight's interview. David Auerbach, welcome to Tectonic. Hi, thanks for having me. David is the author of the recent book, Meganets, How Digital Forces Beyond Our Control Commandeer Our Daily Lives and Inner Realities, heretofore known as Meganets. Uh, and you previously wrote a book, Bitwise, A Life in Code, um, which uh, I guess was based on your years as a software engineer at Microsoft and Google. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think in some ways both books came about from seeing how what I did in those years and sort of the first decade of the century played out in subsequent years and how much it surprised me. The first book, Bitwise, being a bit more from a personal perspective and the, the my current book, Meganets, being more from a social perspective. Uh, yeah, and what you uh, write about, what you, you mentioned about um, your years at Microsoft and Google is what you saw was a loss of control as the, uh, as, as the product grew bigger and bigger. Yeah, and, and not only that, but one something that, that really snuck up on us, I think. Something that, that the key element and the reason why I decided that it was worth trying to coin a new word, which is always, uh, which is always a crapshoot, uh, is that I felt like people were really, um, all of us, all of us uh, programmers and engineers, really had not anticipated the degree to which our users would be exerting influence on the algorithms to the extent that engineers and even companies and uh, regulatory agencies would not be able to control their own, you know, control these 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 mega nets. By which I mean things like not just social networks, but also cryptocurrency networks, online games, any sort of network that brings together millions upon millions of users that are constantly shaping the algorithms and you know influencing them so that you know we tend to think of software as oh well historically anyway we thought of it as you code something up and you ship it into a box and if there are bugs you fix it uh but for the most part people are passive recipients of that code and that's not at all what you see today because your, all of your very actions are influencing the, you know, the weightings and what you see, and they're constantly changing. So you're never you know, stepping into the same data stream twice. And those changes aren't being done by the engineers. They're being done by 
all the users collectively, although none of them so much that they, uh, you know, are exerting decisive control. So what happens is the control is sort of floated up into the atmosphere, sort of like the economy. And I don't think we've yet quite accepted that we have a lot less control over these meganets than I think it's assumed that we do. Uh, the size of these meganets uh, means that human intention, uh, the creator's intention or the company's intention, as well as algorithmic logic, have no part to play whatsoever. It's a component, but, um, but it's much more coarse grained than it used to be. So there are things you can say that, I mean, certainly, you know, Twitter could just pull the plug on their servers tomorrow and Twitter would go away. <laughs> That's true. But if you think, okay, can Facebook actually stamp out every instance of racism on their platform? That's no longer possible. That's a consequence of the size. Yeah, you talked about um, Facebook uh, during the pandemic and how they came under criticism to rid the platform of anti-vax information uh, and conspiracy theories related to the uh, to COVID, uh, and they promised they would. And in the end, they you seem to um, say that they really wanted to and they really tried and they just couldn't. Yeah, I think I mean I think that's true not just of Facebook but also of Twitter that. You know, they certainly stamped out some things. They put warning labels on some things, but a they certainly didn't catch all of it. Um, and b, if you look at just how attitudes have changed, they didn't really. But after the initial sort of um, setting of opinions, people pretty much didn't move. There remained, I think, I don't know, like thirty percent of the U.S. at least that you know was just going to. Uh, believe uh, what one, one one might categorize as um, as uh, unorthodox views on on the matter, one one thing or another, up to and including that like pandemic video. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, if, yeah, I don't know if folks remember the pandemic video. That was the one that was sort of saying that the whole thing was a conspiracy. And I think that Facebook did stamp out that single video, but you can see how little that did. You know, the ideas got into circulation, the content can be converted into all sorts of things. So when when you're trying to filter on particular types of intention and particular types of meaning, so Facebook could eliminate a particular video, but those ideas were in circulation. And, you know, computers are not good at filtering on ideas. They can filter on specified content. <laughs> So if you wanted to filter out anything that says pandemic, that you can do. But as you know, China runs into this all the time. People use euphemisms, then you can get on it. Not to mention that a lot of people don't feel tend to get aggrieved if they feel like um, unorthodox, but not illegal um, content is being is being stripped out. And the, you know, that being a foundation of a free liberal society that you can believe crazy things. <laughs> and I think Meganets have just brought these tensions to the fore in a way that we, that the country has literally never seen before. You did write uh, that people are searching for where the power really lies when it does not lie anywhere. Um, and, That's right. And this gets into the fact that, and we talk about it a lot on this show, uh, that a lot of people do acknowledge the problems with these giant uh, social networks and, and other types of meganets. 
Um, but there doesn't seem to be uh, any fixing it, much less even slowing it down. Yeah. And it's weird because, you know, this isn't a get out of jail free card for these networks, um, for these companies. Uh, I think they owe it to us to at least be more honest about what they're doing. And I think at least be more transparent as well so we can see this loss of control for ourselves. We're encountering this now with AI as well, where um, AI is behaving weird ways, but uh, we can, you know, it's up to these private companies to dig in and say, oh, this is why it did this or that. Um, so, and what I mean when I say that, that the power doesn't lie anywhere, it's that it's devolved, that, that, that is devolved so that each of us has gotten a little bit of power over these networks none of it decisive and that power has come at the expense of any sort of centralized elite entities who still maintain more power but if you get the impression there's this impression that they can't control their own system and that's something that i think facebook the narrative that facebook really did not want to catch on was that they could not control their own systems when for example i think they were having um uh like neo-nazi propaganda on swedish facebook i believe i think i mentioned this in the book um and there was this general sense of okay well why why is this even there how hard can it be it's certainly as far as i can tell there's not a great financial incentive for something like that like if facebook could get rid of it i really do think they would i don't think it's a lack of uh a lack of will i think it is literally a lack of ability right you're you're saying that the problem with facebook is not greed nor is it uh, pure ambition to destroy liberal democracy as we know it. it it's just that um, it's a monster that they've created that they really can't, they can't rein in. Right. And now, you know, they did say you break it, you bought it. So, <laughs> you know, as long as they're in charge of it, they do bear some responsibility. But asking them to do the impossible is not a helpful approach because even if they wanted to, they couldn't. So right. And that's why you've yeah. also... You've also come out against um, governmental regulate uh, a regulatory approach to try to solve these problems. Some of them. I mean, mm -hmm. I think regulation is great in some ways. I'm very happy that uh, the EU is going to force Apple to use USB instead of uh, instead of lightning cables. That's great. Regulation like that is great. Uh, it's when you get into a regulatory approach that assumes that that effectively is going to try to regulate what can't be regulated, that it's just going to turn into a blame game and everybody's going to be just pointing the fingers at anyone else. It can become kind of an excuse. Uh, when Facebook created their, you know, their, their council of, uh, of, I think, do you remember what it was called? The Facebook Content Council or something like that? I do that? remember it. I, I, I can't yeah. recall what it was called. I mean, that was clearly they're looking for for a nice, convenient scapegoat so that we, they can say, well, we didn't make that decision. That was our counsel. And in the case where regulatory apparatus can't actually do much good, I think that that's the tech companies will be more than happy to say, like, well, we're regulated, so we're doing what they're saying. Um, so it's not an argument against regulation per se. But a lot of the regulatory approaches being suggested, I think, are non-starters because they literally are advocating the impossible and will end up with things like, you know, all the, the, the cookie acceptance dialogues, which are supposedly, you know, a privacy mechanism. But I can't I don't really see that as, as having accomplished much. I don't know how you feel. <laughs> 
Um, I like I like the fact that your book comes up with uh, ways at least that the problem can be tamed, the problem of meganets. Um, and I think you had six points. I don't think we'll have time to discuss them all, but some of them really, uh, uh, really fascinated me. Um, one, of course, you're talking about decentralization um, of the types that uh, Mastodon and Blue Sky, as well as WFMU's own um, chat network um, utilizes. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I think that, you know what, Twitter has been such a flashpoint because it is an anomaly. It's it, it served as a um, as, as as a public square where you could see lots and lots of things you didn't like on nonstop, and it was all uh, and it was joining everybody together. I think that in fact that is on the way up because it's not even particularly profitable, and you will see an increasing number of what I term narrative bunkers of people you know joining up with more like-minded souls and shutting out the more the, the content that is either um offensive to them or just alien to them mm -hmm. um and that's not great in itself but i do think that that's the uh the, that's what we're going toward is a lack of centralization in that regard as well um and it's good to the point that yeah that you don't want a company like you know you don't want a company like twitter whether whether elon musk is running it or not because if you look at uh, one of the nice things about musk leaking that stuff for uh the, the, those internal documents about uh twitter is that you saw that they were a mess even before he took over um it's just that i think he was under the impression that it would make him look good in comparison and then there he was mistaken but um <laughs> Do you but think that's the thing is that do, do you think that I'm sorry to interrupt. Do you think that no, um, no. decentralization of the type that Mastodon and Blue Sky um, um, have implemented? Is that even possible for a really large meganet such as uh, Facebook? Uh, I guess it's a good uh, it is. It is. I mean, it, yeah, the issue is what remains you know it, you can see it as an extension of what we have with discords today where, where all this online discourse becomes a bit more effectively private uh and there's nothing you know only inertia is going to stop you from getting there um but in a way it kind of proves my point in that you aren't doing anything to get rid of the problematic content other than for trying your best to silo it so that whatever is problematic to one group tends not to appear to it. Right. Uh, and decentralization is, is an approach to that. I think on the other hand, you will still have centripetal forces that will try to, to monopolize these. I mean, you know, Mast Mastodon is not new and the, the difficulties that you have with that is that you know, networks of certain sizes they tend to grow. They tend to uh, that that unless you have a really robust mechanism of sort of sharing data, at which point the decentralization sort of coalesces into one giant network anyway. In which point you're just making sort of a meta Twitter, except now everybody's fighting amongst themselves. So on the one hand, you have the centrifugal force where people are just bunkering themselves up and ignoring everybody else. On the other hand, you have the centripetal force of, okay, well, a large network is going to attract more users than a smaller network. And those things are going to continue to be in tension. And in both directions, neither, neither of them really solve the underlying problem, which is that you still don't have a way to 
controls, say, some explosive um, piece of information or misinformation that you really want to uh, that you really want to tamp down before it gets completely out of control. Okay. Another one of your ideas for how to tame the Meganet problem was tainting or polluting the Meganet uh, data banks. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that one's a controversial one. That was definitely one of my more uh, aggressive suggestions. And this is this gets to, I mean, we we already know that you know Facebook has profiles on people who literally have never signed up. That that there are these shadow online profiles for us all over the world, uh, both governmental and non-governmental, and they tend to get they tend to coalesce as well. So we are being filtered, judged, assessed, marketed to based on data that we don't even see, much less have any guarantees of being accurate. And um, this has been this is this has been discussed in policy circles where they want to give people more control over their data. But at this point, uh, it's a loaded analogy, uh, but it is a bit like, well, the data is already out there, just like there are already like so many guns out there that even if you were to literally ban the selling of guns tomorrow, you would not, you know, you would you, you would not you would not reduce sort of the. Um, uh, the the, uh, the amount of firearms in, in the United States. Well, same with the data. It's already out there. What you can do, however, is you can put more data out there to muddy the waters. And, you know, this is something that's been suggested on an individual level, which is give uh, companies false information about yourself. You know, I, I actually use a different birthday than my actual birthday in the hope of foiling people matching up my profiles. Mm-hmm. Um but individual efforts aren't going to be enough. It's you, there's too much there, there's too much out there to put the onus on an individual person. But if you were to go out and intentionally just start poisoning poisoning uh, data sources and spreading competing false information, you would effectively lower the um, the faith that people have and, and the the credulity people can take in. Um, in the data that they get for free that's out there and ultimately they would have to go and they, well, hopefully they would have to go and ask the users themselves to share information about themselves so in fact so rather than getting rather than trying to remove personal data that's already out there you're basically trying to uh delegitimize it by making it uh unclear what's right and what's not isn't the internet kind of self-polluting already? I mean, the internet seems like it just the quality of things gets worse and worse. And now with large language models um, becoming a part of the content of the internet, um, it, it just seems like it seems it's like it's it's polluting itself. It's a really good question. I mean, and I think that this is something that I would love to see you know, like some serious academic research on because there's obviously there are obviously great tendencies towards uh, the multiplication of inaccuracies, falsehoods, whatever. At the same time, there are self-regulating apparatuses on it uh, by which correct data is obtained and incorrect data is uh, filtered out. You know, you are as people are providing more correct data about themselves, and often you can say, "Well, I know enough about this piece of data to privilege it over over, say, something I got from some third-party data broker." 
so I, what you're saying is definitely true, but there are forces in the other direction. And in fact, well, you know, what we're looking at, especially with regard to AI, is that, yeah, humans are going to act as editors for AI. AI is going to provide the raw stuff because it can do that really quickly. And then humans are going to be tasked with making sure it's it's accurate and good enough. So you correct for that by effectively trying to create a positive human-machine interaction, which I guess is already there. You know, my book about Meganets focuses on the negative effects of this human-machine collaboration. Um, but, you know, there's no question we get benefit from this. Um, uh, and, and some of that is actually in yeah, the, some self-correcting mechanisms that have evolved. So yes and no, I suppose. Uh, and, and a lot of it is, I think, something yeah, you find out empirically. We are halfway through my interview with David Auerbach, author of the recent book, Meganets, How Digital Forces Beyond Our Control Commandeer Our Daily Lives and Inner Realities. David talks about meganets being extremely large, uh, quickly growing, networks that are not comprised only of algorithms and code, but also of the many millions of people who are influencing it and, and feeding information into it. There's another 18 minutes of the interview to go, and then I'm hoping that we can have a short conversation on the air about it. The phone number is 201-209-9368. Here's the second half of the interview with David Auerbach. I think you wrote in the book uh, that if big tech has our data, then why are target why are targeted ads so terrible? <laughs> yeah, I loved. I mean, I loved to quote the fact that Facebook thought I was black for like five years or so. Um, um, I have no idea why. I can tell you, I've never claimed to be black, but uh, somehow it figured it out. And that's the thing is that th there's outside of realms in which it's considered mission critical to be accurate, such as, say, the medical realm or uh, arguably speaking, certain governmental realms where at least there's a higher bar before they, the government agencies simply can't take data willy nilly and put them into their databases. And um, uh, even even if there are some problems with accuracy, nonetheless, um, that um, there, there's so little ways even for these con companies to measure the accuracy of their own data. There's no question that Facebook would love for that data to be accurate. And yet, if you look at it, you whenever we people get act get uh, get access to it, they see that no, it's it's littered with with, with errors. It's they get to the point of it's good enough or maybe not even good enough, and they work with what they've got. Um, well, it's it's rife with very imprecise. It, it seems like it's rife with pure fabrication, and and you talk about large language models as um, being subject to a problem where language is being confused with understanding, and yeah. the fact that large language models like ChatGPT, etc., uh, don't have any idea what's true and what's not true, and it's not even a relevant. It's, it seems like it's not even relevant to them. Well, they don't, they literally, yeah, they don't have, there's no, there's no, there's that level of semantics just isn't there. Uh, certainly not explicitly, and it doesn't seem to be implicitly. Um, I don't know if you saw the story that happened like last week about the uh, the lawyer who got in huge trouble after submitting a, a brief 
that ChatGPT had written. That yes, exactly. I was thinking about that. For the was, listeners who may have uh, missed that, can you uh, can you can you um, give us a synopsis of what happened there? Yeah, um, there was some case, and I don't even know the detail. It was a typical legal case, but the lawyer uh, had used ChatGPT to generate a brief, and it cited a couple cases just in footnotes, uh, and. Uh, the lawyer evidently hadn't bothered to check, and the 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 judge said, you know, these cases don't seem to exist. Please submit the summaries. And so um, <laughs> he did submit the summaries, which were ChatGPT written, and they were made up cases. Not only that, one of them, uh, the, the summaries weren't even coherent. Uh, one of them started off, I think, uh, one of them started off as... Uh, as a destruction of property case and morphed into a uh, into a copyright case, something like that. But uh, they weren't coherent. So, so you know, clearly the lawyer uh, wasn't exactly uh, doing any due diligence here. Uh, but the, the lawyer probably thought, well, why would ChatGPT? From a naive point of view, if you wouldn't go to ChatGPT and expect it to just make up cases. And yet it seems to be happening all the time. It, they, right. they call it hallucinating, which I hate because that just yeah. that anthropomorphizes the AI. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, I don't like exactly. Yeah, I don't like hallucination. It's either. just fabrication. <laughs> it's just lying and invention and fabrication. Wait, well, but under the guise it, of under the guise of authority. And and we and we, and it underscores and it, it tends to downplay the fact that when it's accurate, it's not accurate with any sort of chat GPT doesn't have grounding. It's accurate by, by probability, not because chat GPT has actually done research and says, yes, this is what corresponds to reality. It's just that the text it was generating went down the right pathways instead of the wrong pathways. So as more and more um, chat GPT type text is loaded onto the internet, and it seems to be happening at a tremendous rate already, there's entire news sites that are completely 100% generated by ChatGPT. Um, as, so as the internet has more and more, how can the content not just get, get worse and worse, kind of like a cassette that you make an endless number of copies of? Yeah, well, once you get so once you get into into AI generated text, it becomes an, it becomes a, a trickier um, uh, a trickier matter. I would to go back to an earlier point by flooding by flooding the zone with garbage, you will actually delegitimize the stuff that seems more convincing to begin with. So it may perversely actually have a positive effect by causing people to give up on the accuracy of anything they read online. <laughs> We're getting a little short on time. I wanted to get into some of the other topics um, that you talk about in your book, Meganets. If, if you're just joining us, we're talking to David Auerbach, author of the recent book, Meganets, How Digital Forces Beyond Our Control Commandeer Our Daily Lives and Inner Realities. And David, you also get into the book about how governments, how various uh, national governments are getting in on the act. Uh, and that's also happening at a very rapid rate these days. And you talk a lot about um, India's Adhar system can you talk yeah. a bit about that yeah so adhar i think is is an augur of the future adhar is india's national identity system every um citizen is issued a single number that uh that acts as their um identifier for 
across all government services and for increasing number of non-government services like getting a bank account or a cell phone. Uh, you know, we don't have that here. Here, we don't have it here yet anyway. Well, you know, we have a different, our driver's license number is not our social security number, is not our Medicare number, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, you know, the, for efficiency's sake, there's a great appeal there. But uh, what I get into the book, into the, what I get into in the book is that over the course of um, creating these systems, you do draw them together in the form of what I call a mega net, that the more you tie people to a single identifier, the more systems based on that identifier will um, combine, coalesce, and create the sort of feedback effects at a greater level than we see now. And other companies, other countries are already looking into Adhar-like systems. And within India, you're already seeing that, you know, identity theft on a scale that you could never imagine before has happened. And that if one aspect of it is compromised, it's no longer localized and contained. It can spread to everything because that single number is you everywhere. And you talked about how Adhar, um, India's national identity system, started off as optional. And of course, it was going to accomplish all these wonderful things. And how has it evolved? Yeah, it's funny because it was always said that it would only be voluntary. And there was even uh, lawsuits to, to force uh, alternatives. And yet, even if it is technically um, optional, the amount of hoops you have to go through to avoid having and using an Adhar number pretty much make it prohibitive. And this is another form, another effect of what I what I call meganets, which is that they they grow and they spread. And even though the intention was for, I, I genuinely believe that the intention was for it not to be required, and yet even the entire government of India could not prevent it from being all but mandatory. And like, uh, is it a problem which, uh, is it a problem endemic to the other meganets where nobody truly understands exactly what's going inside, going on inside the box? Uh, uh, yes, with Adhar you have, a, there's a bit less of the algorithmic problem so far because they aren't, uh, um, Adhar's applications aren't quite as, say, IAI or algorithmically driven. It's more pure data. But there's no reason why that would have to be the case. You know, you're seeing cases in which algorithms are being used to predict, predict recidivism and things like that. Algorithms are more complicated. Algorithms are going to make their way into government applications. So at that point, yeah, the Pandora's box is open and you're going to see whatever has been happening on the meganets here start to happen on government-based meganets, et cetera, et cetera. And can you contrast India's Adhar system with China's social credit system? Yeah, the social credit system is a very interesting case. So a lot of, there's been a lot of, I think, uh, scary stuff written about social the social credit system, which is the idea, the conception that, oh, China rates its citizens on how good they are so that, oh, if you were to, if you buy too much alcohol, China downgrades you and thinks you're a worse human being. 
And the interesting thing is that, uh, well, it certainly is not what you would think of as uh, any sort of uh, ideal of civil liberties. Uh, the myth seems to, be, to far outstrip the reality, which is that it seems to mostly be used to uh, to contain and persecute uh, those who actually do have convictions against them, or at least a, so that, in other words, a subset of the population. And that's not good, but it's very different than the sort of big brother-like surveillance that we that it's being perceived as. Um, so the question is, what isn't there an irony here that Adhar really is pervasive, but China's social credit system isn't? You know, when it comes to oppression, China tends to rely on some more uh, old-fashioned methods. <laughs> they don't, you know, they aren't they aren't tracking people digitally because it's it's it's. I believe what China has found is that it is difficult to control those systems that when during COVID, there were people who got uh, quarantined based on bad information, sometimes based on um, bad actors in the government. And it was not easy to make uh, to, to figure this out. And because, you know, you have this party run state, um, blame immediately accrues to the party. Um, whereas in India, um, many of Adhar's infelicities and, and disasters are fobbed off on, on the private sector, which uses the Adhar number. In other words, they're part of this network, but they also serve as a scapegoat so that they say, well, all the government does is give the number. So we can't possibly be responsible if it's if the data around this number that's provided by private industries happens to get coalesced and used against you. So the irony there is that because they have more total responsibility, China seems to have actually been more cautious about deploying uh, a government-driven meganet in in that to that autonomous degree. And that's not to defend China, and it's not to condemn India. It's more to observe that both of them reveal cases in which you have to deal with the fact that the system is not as controllable as it was anticipated to be, even as it becomes more ubiquitous. And do you know anything about what's going on in other countries? Because I keep hearing that um, lots of other countries are, are implementing various things. But do you, do you happen to know, is it more along the line of India's model or China's model or something different? It's more India's model that that to the, to the extent that uh, that uh, that the, these sorts of developments are occurring, they tend to be occurring in more liberalized uh uh, economies. I wouldn't be surprised if less liberalized countries start deploying them as well, but they tend to be a bit further behind the times. So I think so. I think you're you're going to see India's model become popular. I think you're going to see it, uh, you know, start to get implemented in the United States as well, simply because there's going to be a lot of pressure to as as online governmental systems multiply it's going to seem very logical and obvious that people should have shared identifiers rather than creating new accounts on every single, for every single government service. Do it's just that that brings up the mega net problems that we've been discussing. Do you know anything about um, how Estonia is handling? Does Estonia have a, a single individual ID? Uh, I'm pretty sure that they do. Uh, yeah. I mean, Estonia uh, is small which certainly uh, which certainly helps on their own. And even they, I think, uh, they, yeah, they like to think of themselves as sort of a test lab yeah. for 
for for these technologies uh but um but they're small enough and especially the sort of the network part the hyper networked whatever part of estonia is small enough is that effectively you're looking at at, at something that it's hard to gauge what happens when you scale up because i mean that in a way that's the point that i'm making is that so much of this only happened past a certain scale of size and since estonia is constrained by you know its borders and and sheer and, and sheerly small population estonia is able to get away with it in a way that india which of course has a humongous population cannot right so um uh, and it may be counterintuitive to say like well why if it works for estonia why don't you just scale it up but that's exactly it is that it's not a linear scaling as you connect more and more people you have more and more connections between people and between systems so it becomes exponential and so things get out of control at a faster than linear rate and that's exactly the source of our problem mm -hmm. in your book meganets you also talk about uh a bit about the history of the human desire to see non-human intelligence and you talk about clever hans the horse the horse yeah. uh uh, talk a bit about Clever Hans and, and how you think it relates to the age we're living in now. Yeah, so Clever Hans was this horse in the early part of the 20th century that uh, it that its it, its trainer, its teacher, um, said could do math and answer all sorts of other questions as well. And and you know he would ask it mathematic problems and it would plop out the right answer. And what a very clever psychologist discovered was that. The horse would only get the right answer if it could see the experimenter as it turned out the horse was not doing was not actually solving the problem what it was doing was detecting subconscious cues on the in the teacher as to when it should stop clopping its foot and humans in turn were anthropomorphizing it's thinking that well because it's getting the right answer it must be doing something human -like. and i think that that's happening with chat gpt to a large extent albeit at a much higher level because once you once it's using words it's that much more convincing i mean it is pretty uh, i will not deny that what chat gpt does is amazing in its ability to generate human seeming text uh that just poses that much more of a danger of us reading into it intention thought cognition you name it that isn't actually there. It's it's and and that's why it's a trick in the way that clever Hans is. We and we trick ourselves. Okay, great, David. Thanks so much for talking to us today. Uh, we've been talking with David Auerbach, author of the recent book Meganets: How Digital Forces Beyond Our Control Commandeer Our Daily Lives and Inner Realities. And David, how can people follow your work? I know that you're on Substack, and where else? Yeah, Substack is probably the best. I'm our stack, A-U-E-R-S-T-A-C-K. Uh, you can look at my site, which is David Auerbach, except with a dot between before the C-H, because it's the Swiss domain. Uh, that apparently confuses people. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Auerbach Keller, uh, K-E-L-L-E-R. That's a Goethe reference, which probably has never done me any favors either. Uh, <laughs> so our stack is probably the best bet. Uh, and my book is available in all the usual places, Meganets and my earlier book, Bitwise. Um, thanks for having me on WFMU, the best uh, damn radio station in the country. Thank you, David. 
That was David Auerbach talking about his recent book, Mega Nets. And uh, it turns out David is a huge fan of WFMU and uh, in particular, progressive music. Very appropriate since Dave Mandel's prog rock show, It's Complicated, is coming up in 15 minutes. And uh, that does give us about 15 minutes to take your phone calls at 201-209-9368 if you have any thoughts or comments or questions uh, about the things that David was talking about. And his, uh, his substack is quite excellent, and uh, his book is quite excellent. And it's written, it's written in a very non-technical way. It's, it's uh, definitely written for lay people. His last uh, post on substack dealt more in detail with this uh, absurd notion that uh, ChatGPT and other AI language models are hallucinating. And he talks about why uh, the mere idea of characterizing these uh, fabrications that ChatGPT has been engaging in as hallucinations, even that, calling it a hallucination, implies something that is not true. Because to hallucinate, it suggests that there's a set of things that are known to be part of reality, and there's another set of things that are known to not be part of reality. And of course, large language models have no notion whatsoever uh, of that. Uh, and as I've said before on this program, when I've filled in for Mark Hurst, this is station manager Ken filling in tonight, uh, humanity has a long and fascinating history of trying to ascribe human qualities to non-human entities, whether they're robots or pieces of clay or horses or now uh, software programs. He talked about Clever Hans, the horse in 1904, which faked out the public uh, by pretending, uh, by the trainer pretending that it could uh, do mathematical problems. Uh, an even earlier example was the German Mechanical Turk, not the Amazon site Mechanical Turk, but the original Mechanical Turk, which was a, uh, a chess playing robot which could beat anybody at chess. The only problem was that there was a, uh, an excellent chess player hanging, hanging out inside the Mechanical Turk. So this kind of thing goes on and on. And our most recent object of anthropomorphic uh, uh, wish, uh, wish fulfillment is chat GPT and large language models uh, as we try to uh, imagine, or, or as many people have been imagining, that they've become sentient, that they're conscious, uh, that they understand the difference between the truth and lies and fabrications, which of course they don't. And the point that I was trying to make a couple of times during the interview with David is that as the internet gets more and more misinformation and disinformation on it, and programs like ChatGPT use the internet to create their language model. Um, how can <laughs> how can that problem do anything other than just get worse and worse? Uh, but we shall see. Uh, the phone lines are open. Phone number here. If you want, if you have any thoughts about David's talk about the interview tonight, is two zero one two zero nine. 9368. Hi, you're on the air. Thanks for calling Tectonic. Hi, yeah. It, this whole thing makes you aware of how many people out there have never had an original thought in their life. They think in terms of cliches, and they don't even know what sincerity is. 
I call it like, like if they if they got a if someone close to them died and they got a a card, a Hallmark card, they can't tell diff- the difference between that and if the friend had sat down and written a letter from the heart. They don't know. There's a lot of people out there. They function in a cliche world, and that's why they can be fooled so easily by this chat GBT. They can't tell the original from real life. No, it's true. It's true. It's it's not like we're just starting down this road uh, <laughs> of reductionism and right. And, and, Absolutely. Yeah. No, we've been we've been heading down it for a very very long time, and Hallmark cards are a great example. Yeah. Of don't that. you, don't yeah. you see? Like you you like earlier I. I, I hallucinated because I thought I thought you said hallucinate, like, and then I thought you said collucinate. I said, "Well, there, I, I want to coin I want to coin that phrase. We're hallucinating together. We're hallucinating, hallucinating, collaborating. Yeah, collaborative hallucination. That's a or, great. Or colluding is in there too. But you know, you have to have a kind of open, creative mind in this world. A lot of people they wouldn't notice it. It's not like, oh, there's a good idea. It's not the. I mean, uh, it, it, it just, you, you walk around the world, it's as if we live among zombies. I hear you. But, but it, but it, but it does, it does make those of us who are not zombies and those of us who are not hypnotized uh, stand out a little bit. That's, that's, the one, <laughs> that's the one silver lining I can yeah. find in all of this. Um, I'm going to be I'm going to be filling in for um, Tectonic again, I think, on July 17th. And I wanted to talk that night more about um, AI music and AI radio. Um, but also, oh, yeah. and, and just as with uh, all things AI, I mean, AI music and AI radio have been, or automated radio and automated music have been around for a really, really long time. It's not like it's a brand new concept. And Right. It's like if they said, no, I mean it from the bottom of my microprocessor instead of heart. It's like, that might be fine to people if if you're listening to a an automated DJ. I mean it from the bottom of my microprocessor. Oh, that's sincerity. Well, thanks for your call. I love I love your term. Um, what is it? Hallucination. Yeah, mass hallucinations, collaborative hallucinations, hallucinations. Thanks for your call. Uh, the phone number here. We have another eight minutes before it's complicated. With Dave Mandel comes up, and the phone number is two zero one. 209-9368. Um, along with the, the problem of um, AI and the internet getting filled up with misinformation, including what are um, erroneously called uh, chat GPT hallucinations, um, is uh, I, I, tried to, I tried to make an analogy uh, during the interview that didn't quite come off right, um, which is that my, my feeling is that as there's more and more misinformation, uh, and utter fabrication on the internet. And it certainly seems like there's more and more of it uh, all the time. The internet started off seeming fairly accurate. It started off really just uh, coming from universities. And, and it, it seemed like most things <laughs> on the internet back in the very, very early days were scientifically backed up or factually based. And that is certainly not the case anymore. And since the the way these uh, AI models work is to just eat itself, is to eat the Internet in terms of images or film uh, or text. Uh, it seem, and that, that becomes the fertilizer for the next generation of 
ChatGPT uh, and other fabrications. I just don't see how uh, it can do anything except continue uh, to get worse and worse. And the analogy I tried to use was making an endless copy of a cassette, when what I really meant was uh, making endless generational copies of cassettes to copy one cassette to the next and then take the second copy and make a third copy from that and then make a fourth copy from the third copy. Kind of like Alvin Lussier's famous uh, audio piece, I Am Sitting in a Room, if you know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to go into an explanation uh, on that. Um, uh, David Auerbach also talked a lot uh, in that interview about tainting the data bank. Uh, and I wanted to talk about that, uh, if anybody feels like calling it, 201-209-9368. Have you ever intentionally put up false information about yourself on a social network, such as uh, David mentioned that he intentionally uses a wrong birth date on Facebook uh, on the assumption that maybe Facebook uses somebody's birth date to uh, match up all the identity data that it has on him with the uh, data that it gets uh, from other sources. So by using an erroneous birth date on Facebook, he can prevent the dossier. He's hoping that the dossier can perhaps be prevented from growing uh, even larger. We have a call. Hi, you're on the air. Hey, Ken. Thanks for hosting again and taking calls. Hey, who's this? Um, oh, this is Zachary. Oh, hey, Zach. Hey, um, kind of this conversation about it eating itself, too. It reminded me when I was working in the, the ed biz, there was a lot of uh, cheating algorithms that would read papers and, you know, try to say, oh, this was plagiarized to a certain percentage. Right. And it's kind of like we're your point about feeding itself. We're going to reach the point, is there or the original thoughts, kind of like the other caller was having um, in regards to that. Because how many ways can you really say certain things that are simplistic um, at different levels? And so, you know, these models um, being fed, I don't know, reductionist-type material, it's just going to bottom out, and then eventually we'll have to create some kind of alternative um you know, not a dark net, but the correct net? Yeah. I mean, how, I yeah. I, mean I, I, I hear you. I, I think I know what you mean. I mean, another way that I kind of think about it is that um, I'm a news junkie. And um, since mm -hmm. uh, the beginning of the Internet, the quality of news has just gotten worse and worse and mm -hmm. worse. And I'm not even talking about I'm not even talking about whether it's true or not. I'm just talking about like the length of the article uh, you know, how jam-packed it is with ads and videos and whether it even works. Um, just the quality, the quality of news, is, it's just, of digital news just is amazingly terrible and continues to right. get worse and worse. Well, I think, too, a lot of the, the link rot component, you know, where I live, we've had several of the, the local media agencies, TV, newspaper, otherwise, reboot their websites. And then they atrophy off all the previous articles, so there's no history. Right, yeah. You know, so the local TV station, you can't even go back, you know, a few years ago and find their old articles and videos because they, they nuked the website and it's all gone. Same thing with the newspaper or um, even the college newspaper that's around here. It's real hard to find 
anything beyond five years. Yep. And so there's no historical record. It's all like your point. You know, it's yeah, all well, just the current. Thank God for all... the thank God for the wayback machine. Although the internet ar- um, internet archives having um, some major major legal copyright problems now but hey yeah, about the book yeah right? Zachary, the, yeah Zachary, running out the the books during the uh, pandemic and whatnot yeah i wanted to ask you um something you brought up which is um these um software detection systems for detecting plagiarized term papers i've heard mm-hmm. that there are uh that there's programs that will detect whether something was generated by chat gpt have, have you ever heard or programs like chat gpt have you heard anything about those yeah, no, I've, I've read some articles. I tried one. Uh, it, it worked all right. Again, I think it, it comes down to how, what topic you're going about and then what, you know, how, how simplistic can it be discussed? Is it, is it real niche? Then obviously it's a little easier to detect um, if it's ripping off another paper. But, um, you know, if you're just talking about, you know, even a band, you know, how many ways can you write the bio of, you know, name some band or something, or even the the biography of WFMU. You know, how many different ways can you really write the yeah. general information? Yeah, that's unique. It's you know, it's a lot of facts. I'm sure that's 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 that's, that's going to be an ultimate cat and mouse game of uh, oh, <laughs> detection systems versus the uh, the BS machine, um, as right. may, as maybe it'll come to be known. Well, Zachary, thanks a lot for your call. We are hey. out of time here on Tectonic. And uh, I'll be filling in for Mark Hurst again on July 17th, talking about radio and music automation. Um, And I'm not sure what Mark's got planned, but he's definitely coming back next week. This is WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Thanks for hanging out, everybody. Uh, And stay tuned for It's Complicated with Dave Mandel. that marks the beginning of another episode of It's Complicated. Welcome. I'm Dave Mandel, your host. I'm here every Monday between the hours of 7 and 8 with this program. 60 minutes of Prague and Prague-adjacent music. Thanks for joining me. I should mention before I go any further that today the new summer schedule here at FMU went into effect. And few or no changes on Monday, actually. I'm happy to say I'm I'm still here. I'm going to be on the on the summer schedule due to uh, some administration, administrative error. Uh, no, but seriously, uh, I'm here probably because, uh, because of you, <laughs> because of the response to this show, which has been really positive and really appreciated. And I really thank everybody who has been supportive of this show in its 
short lifetime. I've been here for maybe six months or so doing this show, and it's been great, and I've been thrilled, and thanks everybody who has supported the show so far. I'm here at least until the end of the summer, and then we'll see. I have a few, what, astronaut-related things, let's say, to start the show today. First of all, so in the, in the early 70s, some of you may know, there was a, there was a, a big, a huge bestseller, huge bestselling book called Chariots of the Gods, and this book advanced the theory that astronauts from some other planet had visited Earth many, many years ago and uh, taught, taught the you know, very primitive human beings here at the time how to, how to make tools and, and, and um, make things. Astronauts had come here and, and helped sort of the kickstart <laughs> human civilization on Earth, Earth. And this was a tremendously popular book. It was a huge bestseller, tremendous bestseller. And it was a really attractive theory. Uh, I was a little kid at the time, and I remember it, and I was fascinated by it. I mean, astronauts, there were all these, they dug up all these ancient cave carvings with figures that clearly were astronauts, you know, cave people drawing, uh, making drawings of the astronauts who'd come to visit them and so on. Amazing. It turned out, of course, not of course, but it turned out to be... Um, a scam. Not not only not only was it not true, disappointingly, but I believe that that a lot of the evidence. There were a lot of the, many photos in the in the book of these ancient carvings and so on. A lot of them were were fakes, were were forgeries, and this was terrible, terribly sad news. But the book was a tremendous bestseller, and naturally there were a couple of sequels, spin-off books of it. Eric von Daniken was the was the author. So why do I mention this? I'm going to play a couple things to open this week's show related to that to that book. One of them, I'm going to start with something from the uh, the Peter Thomas Sound Orchestra, German composer, and this is going to be a track. Uh, this is a, going to be a very short piece, a track from the film of Chariots of the Gods. Did I mention the name of the book? I may not have. Chariots of the Gods, with, with a question mark at the end. Chariots of the Gods was the was the title of the book. So naturally, there was a film made of the book, Chariots of the Gods, and we're going to hear a track from that soundtrack. And it's not, um, not a particularly proggy soundtrack, but this, this piece is, actually. I, think, I, feel, I feel comfortable <laughs> playing this piece on the show. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of harpsichord. If you, can't, if you can't get your hands on a Mellotron, uh, a harpsichord is, is second best. So this some harpsichord and it's pretty pretty proggy piece and as i said it's short following this piece by the peter thomas sound orchestra we're going to hear something really special something that is pretty rare and not heard very often there was a group called absolute elsewhere uh and it was just a one-off project as far as i know in um, in 1976 th this this group did did one album and the most notable thing for Prague fans was that Bill Bruford, you know, one of the greatest of the Prague musicians, drummer in Yes and King Crimson, Bill Bruford played on the album. And after, well, this is probably, I'm probably getting too, much, too far down the rabbit hole here, but, but after King Crimson broke up, the, the fantastic mid-70s lineup of King Crimson broke up, Bill Bruford was kind of 
directionless, I think, and, and just played with a bunch of different weird assortment of groups. And he found his way just m maybe to make money. I don't know. He as, as a session, he played on this album. So we're going to hear a track from an album after, after, the, after the Peter Thomas piece. We're going to hear a track from that album. The, again, the group is Absolute Elsewhere, and the album title is... In, God, I've forgotten the album title. In Search of Ancient Gods, I think, is the, is the title. And yes, directly, in fact, on the cover of the album, it says, you know, based on the book by Eric Von Daniken. Okay, so Peter Thomas Orchestra from the Chariots of the Gods soundtrack, followed by Absolute Elsewhere, featuring Bill Bruford. A pretty cool piece, the Bill Bruford one, as you'll hear. Here we go. Thank you. 